0: When Phil Borges takes out his camera, he knows it can change the way other people will view the world.
1: I've given Polaroids to people that haven't seen their face. They can't believe it's them. They'll have to have a friend come by and look at it and point to it and say, yeah, that's you.
0: Hi, I'm Rick Steves. In the hour ahead, we'll hear some creative ideas on how your camera can lead the way in saying hello. When famed portrait photographer Annie Leibovitz designed a cross-country road trip a few years ago, Her goal was to photograph the objects and places of famous Americans.
2: I actually am a child of the road. I do love to, you know, get out and be on the road, and and hence this road trip.
0: We'll also take time to explore photogenic Sicily, where Mount Etna likes to be the center of attention.
3: She's always steaming and putting on a beautiful show, almost always, even if she's not erupting.
0: Faces, places, and tips for enjoying Sicily. It's all just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Stay with us. Her photos reveal more than meets the eye. In just a bit, we revisit an interview we enjoyed a few years ago with one of today's most celebrated portrait photographers, Annie Leibovitz. She tells us about a cross-country road trip she took to document the objects and places of famous Americans. From new views of Emily Dickinson's house in Amherst to Georgia O'Keeffe's desert studio and an amazing cover photo of Niagara Falls her coffee table book, Pilgrimage, lets you look at many American icons in a whole new way. And we'll get a taste of what makes Sicily so photogenic with guides who specialize in showing Americans their favorite places on the island. That's coming up in the hour ahead on today's Travel with Rick Steves. Let's start by meeting the native people of Tibet with the help of documentary photographer Phil Borges. Phil is a master at documenting the lives of indigenous people, and he joins us now to tell us about his work, which led him to better understand the serious challenges Tibetans are facing in the land they've inhabited for centuries. His film and photography projects includes a stunning portrait book called "Tibet: Culture on the Edge." Phil, thanks for being here. Hi, Rick. Great to be here.: Phil, for you, you want to make photography, it seems like, a force for good in your work. How do you make your photography have an impact on people? What, what's your goal? My goal
1: is to take people that we think is very abstract and part of an anonymous group as individuals. So I usually have them look directly at the camera. When I present them in my books and in my exhibits, I have a little bio that gives their name, their age, a little bit about their family, any interesting aspect of their lives. So we can look at them and think of them as just another individual, much like us.
0: So you've done many different books featuring different slices of this world. I'm holding your Tibet Culture on the Edge book here, and uh, clearly you had an interpreter with you when you were doing this work because you interviewed each of your subjects. Yes, always. Do you interview them first and they get comfortable with you, and then you're having a better time shooting them?
1: It depends, but what I do typically when I say I'm going into a tribal area, the first thing I do, I, I bring a Polaroid camera with me. And I start taking Polaroids of the kids. It's a great idea. It gets everybody loose and you're on their team and it's fun. That's right. And kids are very open all over the world. I mean, they're the same, especially boys for some reason. But they all want to have their Polaroid taken. They take those Polaroids home to their parents or to their little mud huts or wherever. And then pretty soon the parents want a Polaroid. So that's one of the icebreakers I use when going in. But I typically, when I meet somebody, I walk up to them and start talking to them because they can read my body language. And I'm talking in English, they can't understand me. Pretty soon they're talking in their language and we're both laughing about (laughs) it. And then I'll call over the interpreter and, and let them know what I'm there for, what I'm doing.
0: When we think about traveling around the world and photographing people, I would imagine every culture has a different idea of what is beautiful. Do you have a sense of that when you're in a different culture Is what is not beautiful from our point of view, but what's beautiful on their terms?
1: In terms of human beauty? Yeah, right. One of the things that happens quite a bit when I hand out these Polaroids, I've given Polaroids to people that haven't seen their face and they can't believe it's them. They'll have to have a friend come by and look at it and point to it and say, yeah, that's you. There but are in...
0: people on this planet that don't know what they look like. Oh, yeah. That's yeah, fascinating. Yeah.
1: Less and less all the time, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but um yeah, that's interesting when that happens in terms of beauty, um you know, I have this book, Enduring Spirit," which is tribal People and Indigenous People all over the world, which I carry with me, and I'll take that, and I'll let them look through it, and they'll look at a, say, uh somebody from Irian Jaya, say, and I'm in Africa. They might have bones coming out of their nose and a penis gourd on, and they'll laugh. Oh, geez, that's the strangest things. How could anybody do that? <laughs> and, and here they're sitting there with uh, you know a lip plate in their and yeah. lower lip that's about six inches in diameter. So, you know, we all have our own
0: senses of what's beautiful. But what struck me when I looked through your Tibet book was that there was a very fundamental beauty in each subject. And it wasn't your standard American beauty. They were not necessarily beautiful by, you know, advertising standards in the United States. But there was a fundamental beauty that transcended, you know, how smooth was their complexion. Are you aware of that when you're working? Oh, yeah,
1: yeah. That's what I'm attracted to. That's what I love taking pictures of. That's in-the-raw beauty. It is. It's just a very natural, un enhanced in any way. Look at the way we're enhancing beauty in this country. But is
0: is this beauty that we see in the rough, is that a function of the strength of their spirit? Because sometimes you see somebody they just go, there is one proud person. There is a person who's on top of things, who's fulfilled. Yeah, yeah. Does that energy come through? Yeah, oh yeah, definitely. I don't know,
1: there's something about being close to the earth. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> and it's in true. that cycle. And, you know, there's dirt on their face. Beautiful, beautiful Yeah, it's people. just
0: such a beauty. When you are dealing with people in different cultures as a photographer, do you find different people uh, have a different fear or reaction to the camera? Some people just can make love with the lens, and other people, <laughs> you're the enemy. How do you get through that? What are the taboos
1: and so on? Well, first of all, you know, I teach a lot, and students are always wondering, how do you break the ice and. First of all, you have to be comfortable with yourself in doing it, and that takes a little bit of practice. But I've been in so many different cultures and tribes, and, you know, I've never heard the term, I'm afraid you're trying to steal my soul. To me, that's an old wives' tale. Yeah. But, you know, it was Ethiopia down on the lower Omo Valley with the Mersey tribe. For some reason, when I was down there, there was a belief at that time that something would come out of the camera and blind them. So they would, when I would hold up the camera, they would duck their head. But other than that, you know, I find it much easier to take a picture of a person like this than a picture of somebody in our culture. Mm -hmm. In our culture, we're worried about, okay, am I going to look too fat, too old, too this, too that? There, they're mostly... Especially if I'm using a light, they're caught up by you know. Geez, this is interesting. It's so trippy, their, yeah. their attention isn't on themselves; it's on me, and it's an outward-directed attention that gives a stronger image.
0: Do you find we- it helps to give them some business, uh, smoke a cigarette, fling a prayer wheel around, or just be alone with the camera?
1: You mean while they're, while I'm yeah. taking this picture? I usually let them be alone when I'm doing portraits. Now I'm doing more films, and I just want them to do what they're doing, and I'm filming. But I pretty much want them
0: just to be there with the camera. Phil Borges is our guest today on Travel with Rick Steves. He tells us how photography honors indigenous communities in this conversation we recorded a couple years ago. He posts photos and video clips from his storytelling projects at philborges.com. That's spelled B-O-R-G-E-S. Phil, how do you go beyond natural lighting? It seems like you've got a sun gun going on or something, even in daylight when you're taking these photographs. Yeah,
1: it's evolved over time, and I started carrying Lumadine lights, which are battery-powered, and I used a big umbrella. Now I mostly shoot natural light because these cameras have gotten so good. The dynamic range is so wide that I can take a picture, even of a dark-skinned person against mm-hmm. a light background, mm-hmm. and I'll be able later in Lightroom to, in post-production, to pull out oh, the so sky. These
0: days you can manage it with the post-production. That's right. What we would call Photoshop, I guess. Or...
1: Uh, yeah, I use Lightroom and Photoshop. Yeah,
0: so you don't need to monitor the light so much with fill light and all this sort of extra work in the field.
1: That's right. I still bring it along Mm -hmm. um, just in case there's a situation that
0: needs it, but less and less all the time. Phil, just to talk shop a little bit for our photographers that are listening, do you use a tripod? What sort of extra gear would you use or would you recommend? Right. I very seldomly use a tripod personally. I want to be able to move quickly. Mm -hmm. I thought a lot of photographers just swear by a tripod, but your shots just look perfectly crisp, so... You've got enough light to get a crisp shot without a tripod.
1: Yeah, these new cameras, <laughs> cameras that you can shoot up around 3,200 ISO, it's incredible. When and you don't
0: you do get the, graininess when you have that much they're ISO? they're pretty
1: clean. The latest one I've heard about is very clean.
0: And then what's the deal with shooting raw? A lot yeah. of people, they see that option, you can shoot raw or high definition yeah. or medium definition.
1: So um, most cameras have an onboard computer that will take the raw data and interpret it. They'll make the contrast, what they think it should be, and Mm -hmm. the color correction, what they think it would be. And then they spit out an image in a JPEG format. But that's throwing away some of the information. So you you
0: can go raw and come home and do that work after the fact? That's right. Is that the idea? That's right. Do you take advantage of that? Oh, you bet I do. I shoot everything in raw. As a professional photographer, you're shooting raw because you want complete flexibility when you get home. To pump up this or saturate that or whatever exactly interesting. and I love your mastery of the depth of field. It seems like you're very aware of what you want out of focus and what you want in focus. Can you talk about that for a minute? Right:
1: Well, the eye in any photo goes to what's in focus, what's the lightest, and how it's composed. so you can use those tricks to guide the viewer to look at the and thing what's you want out of focus but
0: still in the composition really adds to the composition. Yeah, yeah, you
1: can see what's back there in the background, even though it's out of focus. So you can tell the story of the person's environment or what they're dealing with. How do you help the eyes pop? Because uh, <laughs> that's really important, I think. <laughs> yeah, if they're looking straight at you, and usually that the light would help me do that, and I can lighten just slightly the uh, white part of the eye in post and make them pop just a little bit more. So, you know, I fiddle a lot with my images.
0: You wrote, you want to create a relationship between your audience and the subjects. How do you do that? Just having that direct, curious
1: look. And as I say, it's easy to get with these people because they're very curious about me, because I look very different. They're very curious about my equipment. And I just want them to be projecting outwards towards the audience so the audience will feel that.
0: You're bringing home individuals, individual people. Yeah.
1: I want to get them out of the abstraction of their group. I want them to be individuals.
0: We can learn more about your work at philborges.com. And Phil, what's next for you? What's on your agenda?
1: Um, I'm headed for Dolpa in Nepal, a very remote region of Nepal, right next to Mustang. And I'm doing a film on maternal health there. A lot of women die in childbirth and a lot of babies die at birth.
0: So you really believe your photography can be a, a force for good? Yes. Oh, yeah, definitely. Phil Borges, travel photographer. Thank you so much, and best wishes with your photography, your travels, and highlighting the beautiful diversity in humanity on this planet. Thank you, Rick. We have links to Phil's work in the notes for today's show at ricksteves.com/radio. Up next, Annie Leibovitz tells us what she photographed on a road trip across America from New England to Niagara Falls, Graceland, and the Old Southwest. And later, we're off to enjoy the photogenic island of Sicily. It's travel with Rick Steves. She's who they call on to produce the official photographs of people like Queen Elizabeth, Bill Gates, and Barack Obama, and leading celebrities and entertainers. But for Annie Leibovitz, she needed a road trip to see America in a new light. In her book, Pilgrimage, Annie brings us an intimate glimpse into the world of some extraordinary people without even looking at their faces. Annie, thanks for joining us. Glad to be here. <laughs> you know, when we think Annie Leibovitz, we think faces and uh, expressive bodies and so on. And this book, you page through it, there's really not a face in it. What was your goal with this book?
2: Well, it really was a, an opportunity to sort of go down a different road. It was really an exercise in, in refilling myself back up. I, I was having a difficult time, and you know, I just set out to look for emotional landscape. And it started with the photograph I did at Niagara Falls with my children, sort of showing me the picture. And when I saw what came out of it, it was that picture at Niagara Falls and also the pictures uh, that I took at Emily Dickinson's house in, in Amherst that sort of led me to believe that this would be an interesting journey to make a list of places that I've always been interested in or cared about or and just hit the road, go out on the road and and see what emotionally uh, drew me in.
0: Well, the cover of the book is certainly a kind of a minimalist hit-the-road shot, and it is powerful. (laughs) It's it's just Niagara Falls, and it's the front and the back cover in a collection of mostly homes and intimate little details about where mostly great Americans uh, lived and were inspired. Why did you put Niagara Falls on the cover and the back cover of this book? (laughs)
2: Well, Niagara Falls is sort of a metaphor for me. I mean, first of all, I, we were on a day trip to Niagara Falls and I was not having the, the best time because I was having difficulty uh, with business meetings and, and I was on the phone. I was being drawn away to talk on the phone and, and my children, they were having a pretty good time and they, they just sort of waltzed over to the falls and they were they were mesmerized. They were looking at the falls and I... I walked up, you know, and stood behind them and, you know, looked over them and, and took a few pictures. And, and that's the cover of the book. So hmm. like any good Bob Dylan song, you know, it's either a beginning or an end. You know, you have to sort of decide, you know, what you want to make of it. I think what I love about the Falls is that it's not taken from any special place. It's right on the walkway.
0: That's what I was going to ask you. This is, everybody has this view, but the way you photographed it, it's got a soundtrack of its own, even though it's just a photograph.
2: Well, it's true with Yosemite, too, which I had this idea to go back to the Yosemite Valley, and I had worked on a Ansel Adams workshop in the 80s, and I remember stumbling across the view, uh, looking down the valley, and I remember thinking, oh my gosh, this is Ansel Adams' picture. This is, I guess, you know, almost anyone can take this picture. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with
0: Annie Leibovitz. Annie, you wrote, I'm interested in how people live and how they do their work and how you translate that visually.
2: What I mean by that is when I um, do my portrait work, which does have people in it, you know, I, I'm looking for the same things. I'm looking, you know, for the chair that they sat in. I'm, I'm I'm looking for the view they looked out on. I've always been more interested in what people do and how they live more than necessarily who they are. So I, I don't really think of this work as being so different from my regular day-to-day work. It really is the note-taking involved. It's sort of the peripheral vision. You have when you um, when I go to take a portrait you know for a good portrait you have and this is what you're so masterful is catching people
0: at ease how do you catch a home at ease
2: (laughs) one of the reasons I started the project and, and decided it was a good idea was that I was looking for a place or something that that resonated in an emotional way that drew me in and in some places, it didn't work. It didn't work at all. And I had to maybe dig deeper or just walk away from it. I, I seriously was was looking for Lincoln's log cabin. I drove the whole heritage trail. I started at his boyhood home in Kentucky, and then I'm sorry, his birthplace in Kentucky, to his boyhood home in Indiana, and then on up to Springfield. Couldn't find his an authentic log cabin, which apparently toured with P. T. Barnum, hmm. and then found myself sort of didn't quite realize. I was doing this at the time, but when I went to photograph Pete Seeger's log cabin, um, I think it was sort of thinking that Pete Seeger was our, our sort of modern-day Abe Lincoln. His garage was so cool. Yeah. There is a, uh, a workshop in his barn that I couldn't help but photograph, and it's very... <laughs> filled with you know every little space is taken up with something it's almost like looking through his ear into his brain that's right exactly, and his grandson told me that what he loved about peace Seeker's you know home was that you could put something down and ten years later you could come back and <laughs> probably be in the same place. <laughs> Did you call it emotional landscape? Is that the term you used Annie? I guess it's it would have to be imagery that resonated that, that pulled me in that that i that I felt Move to take a picture without having to um, think about it too much, really.
0: It's like intentionally no faces. I mean, I, w- I would have thought you'd put a face of the people featured.
2: But then, on the other hand, to show Lincoln's gloves. Those gloves actually were in his pocket the night he was assassinated wow. at, at, at the theater. Um, and there's actually, you know, there's a blood stain on, um, on one of the fingers. But you can really, what I loved about the gloves was that you feel like you're looking at his hands. Yeah. You know, you can you can feel his hands on all the folds and the creases.
0: Now, you talked about visiting a lot of homes, and some of them worked for him, and others didn't. My thing is Europe, you know, and I visited a lot of homes in Europe, and a lot of them are just the homes of dead people, and, and they just are without spirit. But occasionally, you walk into a home, and it's like they're still there. That's right. Can you talk about a few places that, that really felt like the spirit was there?
2: Well, I think... Emily Dickinson's house, for sure, not not her house per se, but her brother's house was the first one that sort of led me into this this journey period is that they hadn't really changed anything. I mean, the wallpaper was was riding off the walls. It was it was so Victorian. I had no idea what Victorian meant. It was very dark and there were pictures hanging on every single, you know, part of the wall. So that really move me. I mean, I, I just, you could feel that they were there or, or had been there. Uh, there was a bedroom upstairs where Austin Dickinson's son had had died, and, and it just felt too eerie to walk mm. into it. You know, it's not that it was haunted exactly, but it, you just felt their their presence. It's almost like like they
0: just stepped out for lunch, and, and the brushes <laughs> are at the easel, or the pen's on the desk, or, or you take a peek at what are the contents in the drawer.
2: I think the heart of the book is probably the George O'Keefe set of pictures to actually walk into her studio in Abiquiú hmm. and and see where she lived and worked. Hmm. It it really did move me to tears. It was very enlivening. There was probably one of the best pictures in the book is is this photograph of her pastels. Oh yeah. uh which she hand-made. You can feel like Lincoln's gloves, you can feel her her fingers on those pastels and the range of colors are definitely the uh the palette, you know, from from New Mexico.
0: You did a lot of extremely close-up work, and I think extremely close-up has a, has a great intimacy. I mean, you look at that close-up of Emily Dickinson's only surviving dress, and you can understand the, the humbleness of the age and the loving stitching that went into that.
2: I know it's so not my kind of picture, and I found myself uh, going in. It feels like a big responsibility to go that close yes. and try to explain yourself.
0: Annie Leibovitz is our guest right now on Travel with Rick Steves in an interview we haven't heard since it first aired on the show in 2012. She's telling us about a coffee table photo collection she had just released called Pilgrimage. The Smithsonian made an exhibit from her collection that toured to local museums around the country. Annie, this is a travel show, and you did clearly you did a lot of traveling to put this book together. Just from a a listener's point of view who's dreaming about traveling and, and wants to have an insight into some of the great homes or inspirational kind of landscapes we're talking about what are three or four of the best homes that you'd recommend for people to be sure to put on their list
2: well concord is sort of like a concord massachusetts is just sort of a, a hotbed of these writers who you know live together at the same time emerson and thoreau and louise may alcott and um that's sort of an extraordinary place to go visit and it's not far from amherst you know in new york city it's like every block there's <laughs> there's a historic home i mean you know there are small, you know, house museums, and they're remarkably well preserved. I mean, there's a lot of
0: 19th century American history that's intimately preserved from the looks of your photographs. Is that accessible to to every tourist? I mean, is every every photograph in this book is accessible?
2: Absolutely, it is. Most of these places, they either have tours, or mm-hmm. uh, you can set up an appointment to go. You know, the Spiral Jetty is just sitting out there. And it's all, <laughs> this whole <laughs> lake, true, you know, yeah. it's it's not um, a <laughs> well, badlands. No... Is there? You don't need a ticket for Walden Pond, you know.
0: (laughs) Annie, when you looked at all of these great and prolific people's homes, were you struck by how they decorated? I mean, does that give us much of an insight into their passion and their and their genius?
2: That's that's a funny question because I, um, having visited Monk House, uh, where Virginia Woolf had a writing studio in the back, I was very fortunate. They they left me alone in the writing studio to take pictures and. I took everything off of her desk and photographed the top of her desk. And it was like riddled with marks and you know, cigarette burns. And And then I went on to read. Her husband, Leonard Wolfe, writes about how Virginia Woolf was extremely messy. So when you look at this desktop, uh, which I photographed, in fact, it was kind of n- almost near squalor, apparently, is, is what I understand. But uh, the desk sort of tells you that.
0: And just to be there, if if you have a, a creative spirit and to be in the space of somebody who you really admire that in itself is like a pilgrimage actually that's the name of your book pilgrimage exactly yes
2: well you go to to Freud's house in, in London and you can't believe you know that it's it's left the way you know it was when when he was live and then there is the the couch that you know he did all his analytical you know uh, yeah. sessions on it's still there it's kind of interesting I mean it's kind of an eclectic mix. I mean, I also went to Graceland. I went to, uh, I had the opportunity to go to Ansel Adams' darkroom, and to see the the darkroom still intact. And I, I did have the opportunity to photograph Ansel in that darkroom uh, in the seventies. So to see the darkroom still there and and sort of photograph it as a shrine was that'd
0: be a pilgrimage for you.
2: Yes, it was. It was. There's there's some photographers in here.
0: <laughs> I like I like to play the piano, and I got to go to the little cabin on the fjord that inspired Edvard Grieg, and I got to see you know, his piano and his view and his desk and the view that inspired him as he wrote. And then when you know his art, you close your eyes and you're right there.
2: No, that's that's a great description of what can happen. Well, what I hope to encourage, you know, I, again, this was such a personal project. I, I, I'm surprised that anyone else is even, you know, looking at it or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. But but I, what I would like to encourage is is people make their own lists and, and go off and, and whatever means something to them and, so of all, the, of all the visits you made, what was the view that really struck you? Like, wow,
0: I never realized this had such an impact on that person's spirit or creativity.
2: Well, I think that the exercise in Yosemite was, was an interesting um, trial because I, I was with Gene Adams, Ansel's uh, daughter-in-law, and the first time I went into Yosemite, and we woke up in the morning, I was going to go out and photograph the valley, and there were no clouds in the sky. And Gene Adams said to me, well, Annie, um, you know, um, Ansel would wait three weeks for clouds, you know. So then that sort of set me on this path that I wanted to get the valley with clouds in it. I went back actually 10 days before the book was supposed to be turned in. Anyway, it's a lot harder than it looks. <laughs> it's like, so It was. I had a great appreciation for, for Ansel's. When you go to that spot where you look down the valley, and of course, you know, it's it's still with us because of people like Ansel Adams who gave us these images but um, it's a Mecca I I was never there by myself there was always at least one photographer and then the day I actually got the the picture I wanted there were like maybe 50 or 60 photographers there it is really a Mecca for photographers so beautiful and when you get an Ansel Adams sky I would suppose the photographers come out of the woodwork
0: Annie Leibovitz's photo collection, Pilgrimage, features no faces, but it captures the spirit of dozens of great people who are important to our culture with portraits of where they lived and the objects that were a part of their everyday lives. You'll find more about it with this week's show at ricksteves.com slash radio. Annie, we looked at all of these people's homes and so on, and I'm wondering if Annie Leibovitz was going to go to... The home of the woman considered the most celebrated living photographer, your house, what would she find and what would she want to capture in in her photo essay? What would they find in your living room?
2: That's a tough question because, you know, I, having grown up in a military family where I traveled every couple years, I actually am a child of the road. I I do love to, you know, get out and be on the road, and and hence this this road trip. I grew up uh, driving across this country... Growing up my family couldn't afford, you know, hotel rooms and so we we slept in the car and we and we drove and, you know, my father was stationed in Fairbanks, Alaska, and then we'd drive down to Texas. <laughs> you know, he'd be stationed in Texas and then we, you know, Bloxy Mississippi. So I've I've traveled pretty extensively through this country and I my children have have sort of, you know, forced me to, to settle down, which is not a bad thing. It's a good thing. You know, I think I built my last home for my children. And I'm trying this idea of staying put, um, <laughs> you know, and giving them a consistent, you know, life. But the home I have now is really something for for them to live in. Do you have your favorite photographs hanging around? Or is it a place where you get away from that and you're not Annie the Great Photographer? I, I don't hang my own photographs in my house. I, I can't afford the art that I really, really love. But when my children started drawing early on, I, I love their, their work because it seems to me that all we try to do as adults is try to get back to being children in our <laughs> painting. Um, and I started, you know, hanging their, you know, their work all over the house. And my children's drawings and paintings are so magical and so wonderful. And when they come home from school with the drawings, I'm I'm framing them. So that's what's in the house is the artwork is is my children's. And then I I do have a very nice little photography collection of the photographers I've always admired. I have some Lynn Davis's. In the living room I have Cartier Brison, Robert Frank, an Avedon. So that's what that's what the children are growing up with.
0: So you're trying to create a, a nest. You're trying to settle down now.
2: I am I am trying. I am yeah. trying. You sure look like a woman
0: of the road on your photo in the book here with you in the boots in the back of the pickup there.
2: Yeah, I'm more I am more <laughs> that person. I I mean these road trips for the children, you know, taking, you know, the children to Niagara Falls and uh you know, I, I do plan to Take them out to do, you know, the Midwest, and that's what I—that's what I've been dying to do—is—is is getting them out on the road with me. Maybe they can give the photographer a, a fresh excuse to look at things. They will. They and they <laughs> did with with this book. They will. Well, I can't wait to take them out driving to to see this country because it's a it's a great country. What's interesting is is Annie Oakley in the book. There's um, two pages dedicated to a photograph of her trunk. I love it because yeah. You know, she tried to settle down, but she she never did. She she lived on the road. There's a Robert Frost manuscript at the the beginning of the of the book that I discovered at the Jones Library in in Amherst, and it's it's uh, the poem "In Miles to Go Before I Sleep," and mm-hmm. "Miles to Go Before I Sleep," and it's on the dedication page for my children, you know, to Sarah, Susan, and Samuel, with the idea that we have lots more to do. And as you thumb through this book, I'm
0: thumbing through it right now. What do you see? If you just thumb through the book and you look at the the beautiful images that you've collected in this book, what what's the bigger picture here?
2: Well, I, I think um I didn't quite see it until um many of the pictures were hung at a small book signing in New York and and I was looking at them up and I and I realized it really it really was a search. And the search is not over and you know, don't ask me what I'm searching for <laughs> but uh, you know, just to see how people lived and, and what they did with their lives and people that I, I cared about and uh, just to collect notes. I, mean, I was just thinking about the Old Faithful picture, which I it took me two days to get those pictures. Um, again, I'm thinking about Ansel Adams and what he must have done, what the early pioneer photographers did when they first went out and discovered these places. Wow, these images tie things together and they keep things alive. They're everywhere. I mean, you know, these small historical places that, that give you such resonance and, and give you um, a lot of insight into who we are and what to do with ourselves next. <laughs> Annie Leibovitz, best wishes with your work and finding that nest
0: at home. Thank you. Well, may the world go, the
2: world go, the world go. Well, may the world go when I'm far
0: away. Share your thoughts on what you hear on the show with us. Our email address is radio at ricksteves.com. We're heading to one of Europe's most interesting islands next and taking your calls for our travel experts on Visiting Sicily. We're at 877-333-7425 on Travel with Rick Steves. It took me seven trips to Italy before I discovered the warmth and delights of the island of Sicily. I'd say the Sicilians tie with the Irish as the friendliest people I've met in Europe. To help us get acquainted with the highlights of Sicily, we're joined now by two certified tour guide experts to the island, local boy Tommaso Panti and Sarah Murdoch. Welcome. Buongiorno. Thanks for joining us. Hey, uh, Tommaso, if you were to describe for an American or a Canadian heading off to Sicily the best 12 days to enjoy your homeland, what would you do just very quickly in 12 days?
4: So I would start first from Palermo. Uh-huh. Palermo, when you see the 16 different domination that dominated Sicily, it's all it's a concentration there. All of the culture is a layer cake in Palermo. It's a layer cake and in then Palermo. Where? And then I would go to Trapani. And then from Trapani, I would go to Agrigento. And then so, from first of all, Trapani is on the far west. West. And uh, why do you like Trapani? I mean, I like Trapani for many reasons. Reason number one, because they have the beautiful salt flat pan.
0: Okay, so this is where they would um, harvest the salt the basically. Salt, they would evaporate it from the sea and everything. Everybody would get that very important salt.
4: Exactly. Then from there, I would go to Agrigento. Agrigento. Agrigento, yeah, for the valley of the temples, those beautiful temples dating back to the 5th, 6th century before Christ, in perfect condition. I mean, you go there you see the Temple of La Concordia, do you say, but this temple was built yesterday or was built 2000? It's that new looking and it's from 500 before Christ. Absolutely. It's a reminder that Sicily was a very important part of Greek culture. Yeah, it was a Greek colony. I mean, the Greeks arrived in Sicily in 734 before Christ. Some of the greatest cities of Greece 500 BC were in Sicily,
0: actually. Exactly. Okay, so from Agrigento, where do we go next?
4: Okay, from Agrigento, I would go to Piazza Armerina at the Roman Villa del Casale. So this is different. This is not ancient Greek. This is ancient Roman. Remember the layers, you know.
0: Okay, the layers. <laughs> this, is, this is the ancient Roman layer.
4: Yeah. <laughs> so we go to a beautiful villa that basically was built uh, between the 3rd and the 4th century AD, Roman time.
0: So three or 400 uh, after
4: Christ. Yes. These are
0: Romans. And this is a villa. What's so
4: famous about this villa? Uh, the mosaics. I mean, when you see those floor mosaics, you know, yeah. shining in the color, that beautiful green color or red color or black color, you know, and these human figures. Now, and this animals. was the home of, like, a, a man who sold exotic animals, right? Yes, exactly. It was uh, probably, we don't have evidences, but probably it was uh, the family of the emperor, you know, mm-hmm. part of the family of the emperor. So it was a hunting lodge or social function because of the expeditions we have from Rome to Tunisia. So we have many theories about that.
0: Okay, but there's all sorts of crazy animals shown in the mosaics. In the mosaics, and yeah. then from Piazza Armerina, uh, Piazza from, you would, would go to Syracuse.
4: Siracusa. Siracusa, and, Siracusa and, uh, is a beautiful. This is the big city. It's a big city in the southern east part of the island of Sicily, where basically we have. Uh, Great Greek ruins, because uh-huh. remember, Syracuse was in competition with Athens. Remember the Peloponnesian Wars. So we have so, all this l- kind like of... like
0: Palermo, it's a big city, but this has many impressive Greek ruins. Greek
4: after... and also, yeah, in Baroque style. And then from there, I will go to Catania. Mm-hmm. And from Catania, Taormina the gem of Sicily, and that's sort of
0: the romantic resort. Absolutely, set on a bluff with a beautiful view over the sea, with a famous uh, Greek Greek Roman
4: theater. Theater, It is beautiful, yeah.
0: And then finally.
4: And finally, of course, my homeland, the Aeolian Islands. This is something that you should not miss in your tour of Sicily, especially if you have 12 days. So I would visit, first of all, the island of Salina, where the movie The Postman was filmed. Okay. All right. And then I would visit, for sure, the island of Stromboli, which is an active volcano. So these are little islands,
0: just a short boat ride north of
4: Sicily. Northeast of Sicily, yeah. And you go
0: there by boat from...
4: By boat from Milazzo. There is a port of Milazzo. No. So, so you embark. I mean, you board your boat from there, and you visit. You can do even daily excursion from there. Okay, uh, so Tomaso, that's a good itinerary. Now,
0: Sarah Murdoch, these are the places to see. What would you say, as a tour guide, are the most important experiences for a traveler to really appreciate Sicily as opposed to Italy and so on?
3: I think the important experiences are getting to know the people of Sicily. I think the people of Sicily have a really different character. Uh, and understanding the the dominations that Tommaso spoke about and the, the colorful sort of mixture of cultures, I think Palermo's a great experience. Even if it's a little bit of a scary city, it's a little intimidating. Once you actually see the elegance of it and the combination of all the cultures, that really adds a lot to your experience. So understanding the melting pot uh, Mm -hmm. aspect of Sicily and multiculturalism there, it's a really multicultural society. So the people are definitely a highlight for me. Yeah. What about
0: organized crime? Because we th- we think of the Godfather and everything. Uh, for a traveler today, how does that impact your experience?
3: Not at all. You don't see it at all. It's not something that you will encounter as a tourist. Not even a little bit.
0: Does it still survive? Is there still uh, this yeah, sort of a, absolutely? Tr- it's sort of like territory, isn't it? Different families have different territory. Or what? What's the behind? If you understood organized crime in Sicily sure. right now, what's going on?
3: Well, it still exists, definitely. A lot of the organized crime has sort of um, gentrified in a sense where they've turned themselves into more um, things like construction companies or they've invested their money in other kinds of operations. So it's just corruption
0: instead of it's corruption.
3: And the real drug kind of mafia that you hear about on television and on the radio and so on uh, is more centered around Naples, actually. The Sicilian mafia is something that's not as front and center as it used to be. And really, the only place that a tourist will encounter sort of the vestiges of the Sicilian Mafia, you'll see in Palermo, there's a really big uh, monument and a mural of uh, Falcone and Barcellino, the judges Mm -hmm. that were assassinated. But that was a turning point in 1992 for Sicily, where the population decided that they were done.
0: So when the population turned on the Mafia, that really was the beginning of the end for the Mafia dominating the culture. Absolutely. And until then, it was sort of like Robin Hood, and Sicily was ruled for centuries by stupid colonial powers, and and this was just a way to survive, basically, is to help. Yeah, and
3: I think there was a sense of hopelessness in a way that there was no way to get rid of that problem, but, right. but the people were galvanized after those judges were assassinated, in and it changed. in
0: the 90s. So this is... Yeah. no Tommaso, you've grown up in Sicily. What change have you seen from a, a law and order point of view and from just an economy point of view in Sicily?
4: Well, big changes. I mean, I think in these last uh, 10 years, in this last decade, uh, the economy of the island has improved a lot. Mm -hmm. I mean, we have a big improvement. Okay, we have a lot of uh, uh, young people that want to emigrate, want to go, especially to the northern part of Europe for a better job. But uh, if we consider this point of view, I think that in Sicily, they could work. They could work, especially in the agriculture. You know, Mm -hmm. the agriculture is one of the main... uh, Economical uh, activity for us, but as you know, young generation, young people, they don't want to be farmer. So that's why most of the people, you know, they prefer to they go, go to, to the big know, city. To the big city, and find a better, a better condition of life.
0: I was just in Palermo, and I remembered being covered with dirt and grime on the buildings and and dark walls. And today, it's pedestrian only. It's well lit. Yeah. The walls are clean. There's uh, an energy. The it's a big, different feeling.
4: Exactly, the big change actually happened when Palermo, the pedestrian area, was declared UNESCO World Heritage.
0: So the historic center was given a, a special protection.
4: A special protection by the United Nations. And this was absolutely the moment when the city changed a lot. I mean, you see by night, you go by night there, there is a lot of passeggiata. I mean, the, the
0: passeggiata, passeggiata in, in <laughs> Sicily is the way to do it. Sarah, when you're in Palermo, how do you make a point to enjoy the passeggiata?
3: Oh, the passeggiata. I love going out and enjoying the street food scene. That's one of the things I really enjoy doing, either by a tour or just on my own Mm -hmm. uh, and hopping from place to place and trying a lot of the nibbles. I love the area around Teatro Massimo, via Makeda, which is the street with all of the shops. Uh, And they've really lit up the streets. Palermo, I've been going there for maybe 10 years now, and I can't even believe it's the same city, even in the last five years.
0: I couldn't either, because my memory was so different from what I experienced this year. And when you're thinking about this new relative affluent in Sicily, I mean, it feels like good times. To what degree is that subsidized by um, taxpayers from northern Italy?
3: Probably quite a bit, uh, and also I think that more and more money is going to Sicily from the European Union, especially as more attention is focused on it. Palermo is a cultural capital this year, and it's being supported by funds from the EU. So it's a a wonderful time to go to Sicily.
0: This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Sarah Murdoch, and we're talking with Tommaso Pante about Sicily. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. Lorenzo is calling from Boise, Idaho. Lorenzo, thanks for your call.
5: Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, do you have a comment or question about Sicily?
5: I do. I would love to go to Sicily. I've never been. I've been to Italy a few times. I've just never made it that far south. Once I get down there, is there pretty good transportation to get around all these sites? I'm not a big car renter, so I need a way to get around to these places, and what is the transportation like? Can I... Get trains, buses. What? How do people get around? With,
3: Sarah, when what's on the what's bus? your answer there? You know, I'm writing a book on Sicily right now, and this is a topic I was just discussing. Uh, and Sicily can be a little challenging without a car. A car is a lot of fun, and it's actually less intimidating than you may think. But if you want to go car free, you absolutely can. And I have a really elegant solution for you. If you start on the far west in Trapani, fly in there, you can use that as a home base for doing little day trips in the area there, and that's a little bit more uh, countryside. It's not really urban. Then you can head to Palermo on the bus. From Palermo, you can spend two or three days there, go up to Monreale, which is a beautiful cathedral with mosaics. And then from there, it's an easy two-hour bus connection to Catania on the far eastern side, which has an easy airport that's only 15 minutes from the city Two-hour connection by bus. Mm-hmm. Two to three hours. Yeah. So so know, that's Two the, Sicilian you know, hours. You know, the impressive <laughs> thing, I
0: was, I was on a 12-day tour of Sicily, uh, 10 or 12 days, and what I was struck by is how how short the drives are. It's an easy island to get around, in yeah. part because of the tax revenue or the money for infrastructure that comes in from the north. That it feels like the roads are overbuilt for the traffic. I mean, you've got great freeways for a little island with not a lot of traffic. I never noticed any traffic jams. You can get around easily. And as Sarah said, if you don't mind driving, it's a great place to drive. I'd recommend doing it by car, but if you insist, uh, of course, there's public transit and you'd, you'd want to let the existing transit routes probably help dictate, I think, your itinerary.
3: Yeah, and I would definitely suggest you do buses rather than trains. The train yeah. system does not connect enough and it's slow. That's important in a yeah. lot
0: of countries. Portugal, Ireland, uh, Sicily. We a lot of times think of train because we traveled in France or Germany, but yeah. no, buses really work much better to muscle.
4: Yeah, I agree. I mean, I agree. I totally agree. Of course, there are areas of Sicily where the train connection are good. For instance, if you go from Palermo to Cefalu I mean we have a one hour ride by train and the train is about every half an hour or one hour so that's great for that I mean some areas
0: of Sicily are very well covered because Cefalu is a wonderful it complements the bigger cities and that I have beautiful memories of Cefalu as a, a wonderful small fishing town basically yeah
4: it is still a fishing town. Of course, the tourism is increasing, but still has this kind of beautiful medieval atmosphere oh, with it. a lot of oh. restaurant, fishing restaurant. You eat your fish just on the water, by That's the perfect. water. It's yeah. perfect. Lorenzo, I
0: hope that gives you some ideas.
5: I'm getting excited about booking a ticket there. Thank you so much for your help.
0: I'm getting excited just talking about it. Thank you for calling. Happy travels. Thank you. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're joined by Tommaso Ponte and Sarah Murdoch. We're talking about Sicily. Our phone number is 877-333-7425, and Garrett is calling from Chicago. Buongiorno, Garrett.
5: Oh, ciao, a tutti. Thanks for <laughs> taking my call. <laughs> you bet. Uh, yeah, we were in um, Sicily over Easter this past April, and um, a highlight of our trip was being in Trapani for Good Friday. We were there, and we saw the procession of the mysteries. You know, this is where they have the... Sculptures depicting the Passion of Christ, which are carried on these beautifully decorated platforms with, like, candles and flowers, and it's all carried on the shoulders of the men of the town, and it was an absolute spectacle, you know? I mean, if you could picture, you have, um, like, these beautiful sculptures, and you have the sounds of bands playing, and choir singing, and people solemnly praying, and... And then you have the scent of the candles and the flowers and mixed with the ocean air and, Mm. you know, the sun setting as the parade winds around town and all with the backdrop of this beautiful baroque town by the ocean. it it was absolutely spectacular. I mean, we definitely will not forget this experience for the rest of our life, I think.
0: Garrett, you sound like a travel writer. That was beautiful, and you know, I was there in Trapani on the same day on Good Friday. Uh, that's amazing, but it was a you. You described it perfectly. Everything sort of sways from left to right. The guys marching with the with the floats, all yeah. the men holding it, and then they slowly wow. go left. I'm going left and right right now, and all of the uh, the people who gathered around they seem to go left and right also. The whole place was mesmerized as Good Friday was remembered. I just thought it was one of the greatest uh, spectacles I had seen you can go any day of the year and visit the church and see those um, the procession of the mysteries, but to see them actually yeah. taken out of their stalls at the church and brought through the city and as you mentioned, it goes for like all day and it's deep 24 into the hours. Night. Yeah. It's 24 hours,
3: 24 hours. Yeah. and it's funeral music that they play the whole time. It's a funeral dirge. Yeah. Ah, okay. And the, and so they play yeah. that very sad music and they sway to the music and people come and they they take over for each other. Oh yeah. Yeah, it's really neat and the but, whole yeah, town is and, involved.
5: I think even if you're not religious, just seeing like the effort that it takes to like put on an event like this year after year for like what is it like oh. 400 years?
0: It's, it's a like rich example of the culture. Mind-boggling. I love it, and the thought that people would gather on whether they're religious or not and be touched by it. It's a beautiful thing. Tommaso?
4: Yeah, I agree. Actually, they do the preparation of this uh, one year before. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we have this kind of a congregations, oh, yeah. you know, and uh, each congregation uh, try to do the best, uh, the best cart, or the best uh, religious statues. Yeah. So and there's so a like.
0: community spirit.
4: Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Garrett, yeah.
0: thanks for your call and, and reminding us of the beauty of the procession of the mysteries on Good Friday. Yeah. Take care. Thanks for the call. Well,
5: thank you very much. Bye-bye.
0: Sicily's our destination right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Our travel expert guides are native-born Tommaso Ponte and Sarah Murdoch, who's helping me write a new guidebook to Sicily for next year. Sarah, when you're thinking about Sicily, the one uh, great site that didn't make it on Tommaso's greatest hits was Mount Etna, the volcano
3: Mount Etna is such a wonderful site. It's actually the top tourist destination in Sicily. Uh, They call it Mama Etna because she sort of is the mother of the island, and she affects so much of their soil and their atmosphere. And if you fly into Catania, she's the first thing you see, and she's always steaming and putting on a beautiful show, almost always, even if she's not erupting. And to experience her as a tourist, you can obviously see her from Taromina, you can see her from Catania, just a view, but you can actually get up close and personal, and there's a couple of different ways you can do it. You can take a car if you have one and drive up to a a really easy area where you can drop your car and do a nice little stroll around craters. Another thing you can do from that same location if you're more adventurous is to take a cable car up to a higher elevation where you get onto 4 by 4 vehicles and they will take you to the summit. So that's an all-day experience you can do. There are tours that do that kind of thing. And if you're not really a person who's into hiking or craters, but you want to get a little more elegant experience of Mama Etna, you can taste the fruits of her labors, and you can do sort of a wine tour. Uh, the north face of Etna is sort of a hot spot. I'd call it the Napa Valley of Sicily, hmm. uh, near a town called Randazzo. You can go out there and visit wineries and beautiful restaurants, and it's a little bit more of a lazy sort of easygoing way to experience Etna. She's a wonderful creature, really. You can't speak about the mountain as. It is a, a living
0: mountain. It's in a, a lot living thing,
3: yeah. And they refer to it as a, almost a person, really. She's and a character.
0: So, Sicily is a hot destination. It's a work in progress. It's yeah. multidimensional and it's got lots to offer. We've been talking with Sarah Murdoch and Tommaso Ponte about Sicily. Let's just close with one favorite, quintessentially Sicilian experience that you'd want to share with one of your travelers if you were guiding them around Sicily.
3: Oh, my favorite thing to do uh, is actually in Tommaso's hometown, and I ran into him doing this very thing this past fall. Uh, is there's a little bar called the Bam Bar in Taromina, and I have lovely memories taking my my son there. Uh, we sat out there, and it's a granita bar, hmm. and that's something they have for breakfast. Uh, and you can have a dozen different flavors. They'll pile it in your glass, kind is of like, like
0: a slushy or a like or a ice slushy. Corn, yeah. yeah,
3: kind of like a slushie, and uh, it's flavors like almond and chocolate, and they'll layer them up like a sundae and put a big dollop of whipped cream. But here's the weird part for a Americans, they serve it with a warm brioche egg bun. And you take that and you dip it in or you pile the granita inside the frozen granita. It sounds gross, I know, and but it's so good. And your son probably goes,
0: is this counting for breakfast?
3: Yes, I know. And every <laughs> single day we rented an apartment next door to the Bam bar, And every day, my child, when he was nine, he would get up early and go over and get two of us cappuccinos and a big granita to share. So that's oh. my favorite thing to do in mm, Sicily.
0: Nutrition Sicilian style. And Tommaso.
4: Yeah, my favourite to do, I mean, it's uh, just to sit always in Taormina, you know, in the main square and watching people, watching people, you know, doing the passeggiata, the parade. This is a great way, you know, to understand the culture. This is the great way also to understand Sicilian. Just a simple thing. I mean, your soul is very enriched about this kind of experience. So the passeggiata, watching people having the passeggiata in the main corso. You guys are fantastic. Sarah and Tommaso,
0: mille grazie. And I'll see you in Sicilia. In Sicilia, grazie.
3: (laughs) Grazie, Ricardo. Piacere. (laughs) Grazie.
4: (laughs) Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington, by Tim Tatton and Isaac Kaplan-Wilner with Sarah McCormick. Our website is managed by Andrew Wakeling and our theme music is by Jerry Frank. Special thanks to KUOW in Seattle for studio help this week. You'll find more online at ricksteves.com slash radio. And we'll look for you again next week with more Travel with Rick Steves.
1: Each year, Rick Steves Tour Guides take thousands of free-spirited travelers on escorted tours through Europe, one small group at a time. You can choose from more than 40 different vacations in Europe's best destinations, from Ireland to Greece, and practically everywhere in between. Begin your next trip at ricksteves.com.